Good. I'm Sue Wood, and I go to the 8.30 service. Our reading today is Isaiah chapter 48, verses 1 to 22. Listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah, you who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. You who call yourselves citizens of the holy city and claim to rely on the God of Israel, the Lord Almighty is his name. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron, your forehead was bronze. Therefore, I told you these things long ago, before they happened, I announced them to you, so that you could not say, my image has brought them about, my wooden image and metal god ordained them. You have heard these things, look at them all. Will you not admit them? From now on, I will tell you of new things, of hidden things unknown to you. They are created now and not long ago. You have not heard of them before today, so you cannot say, yes, I knew of them. You have neither heard nor understood. From of old, your ears have not been open. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You were called a rebel from birth. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to destroy you completely. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summon them, they all stand up together. Come together, all of you, and listen. Which of the idols has foretold these things? The Lord's chosen ally will carry out his purpose against Babylon. His arm will be against the Babylonians. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I will bring him, and he will succeed in his mission. Come near me and listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. And now the sovereign Lord has sent me, endowed with his spirit. This is what the Lord says your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand your children like its numberless grains. 
their name would never be blotted out nor destroyed from before me. Leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians, announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Hi, my name's Rod, and wherever you're watching today, whether at home here in Wollongong or overseas even, we're glad that you've continued uh, to join us for this series in Isaiah. We're looking at a very challenging theme today, so let me pray for us and ask that God will help us as we come to his word together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word given to us. We thank you that through it you reveal yourself and ultimately your plan of salvation through your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we ask that today you might help us uh, to grapple with the topic of idols, that you might help us to see the challenges that you put before your people uh, in Israel of old uh, that relate to us just as much today. Uh, work in us, we pray. Convict us through your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller writes, To contemporary people, the word idolatry conjures up pictures of primitive people bowing down before statues. When Paul went to Athens, he saw that it was literally filled with images of divinities. There was Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, Ares, the god of war, Artemis, the goddess of fertility and wealth. Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones, argues Keller. We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and to gain more wealth and prestige. It comes from taking some incomplete joy of this world and then building your entire life on it. That is the definition of idolatry. And the human heart is an idol factory. You see, from King Solomon all the way to the exile in Babylon, idolatry had been a big problem in the nation of Israel too. In fact, idolatry was the primary reason for the exile. And as the remnant of Judah stood on the brink of return from exile to Jerusalem, it was still a cloud that hung over the future. The issue of idolatry that's already been alluded to in Isaiah chapters 40 to 47, as we've looked in our series so far, is now brought to a head in chapter 48. And it begs the question, how does God deal with idolatrous people? We will see God address this issue in several ways in Isaiah 48. And so our big question today is how does God deal with idolatrous people? Which brings us to the first answer. He points to past promises and reveals the future. Have a look again at verses 1 to 5. 
There we read, Listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah, you who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness, you who call yourselves citizens of the holy city and claim to rely on the God of Israel, the Lord Almighty is his name. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore, I told you these things long ago before they happened. I announced them to you so that you could not say, my images brought them about. My wooden image and metal God ordained them. Now, the opening two verses offer a list of positive ways of describing the exiles, but none of their heritage or actions, we're told at the end of verse 1, are in truth or righteousness. They had the right background from Jacob, whose 12 sons provided the lines for the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were from the southern tribe of Judah, where God's holy city, Jerusalem, stood. They even took oaths in the name of the Lord and claimed to rely on him. But none of it was matched by a genuine response to God. And they didn't hold to the truth of God's word and live righteous lives. Instead, they worshipped idols of wood and metal in verse 5. And so Judah couldn't assume that they were the people of God just because of their heritage. Within the nation, there were those who were truly God's people, but there were others who were not. Instead of listening to God's prophetic word in the past, which had now been fulfilled in the exile and honoring God as a result, they gave credit to their false gods, claiming they had ordained the events that had come to pass. Even being exiled in Babylon need not change the human heart. In fact, this human stubbornness is given as the reason why the Lord provided predictive prophecies in verse 4. They were stiff-necked people. Prediction was a major strategy used by God to expose the, the useless nature of idols. You see, the passage assumes not only that God has told his people in the past what was to come, but is now doing that again in verses 6 and 7. And when these new predictions come to pass, they should be convinced of the Lord's unique knowledge and power. And yet their stubborn idolatry persisted, and they wouldn't admit God's sovereign control over events. Well, how can we apply all this to ourselves today? God's people today are just as prone to idolatry as were ancient Israel. It's important to note that Isaiah's words were only occasionally directed towards non-Israelite followers of other religions. God's anger was largely aroused because his people, who should have known better, were worshipping other gods in addition to the one true God. One application of their failures for Christians today should be a constant, deliberate rejection of syncretism. That is, the adding of other beliefs or idols to our trust in God, even in the most subtle ways. You see, Christians can get drawn into this confused thinking by reinterpreting Jesus as they mix in other things as well. 
As one commentator has said, many Americans write their own Bible. Scholars call this domesticating God, turning him into a social planner or a therapist or a guardian angel. Christian psychologist Larry Crabb notes that there are even many Christian books which take this approach, where God is the butler, as it were, who serves you to give you a happy life. He says we've turned him into a divine Prozac. And it's also the religious talk seen as acceptable by TV shows. It's the spirituality that Oprah promotes. It's all about drawing on whatever works for you so as to bring self-improvement. But like ancient idols, this modern worship of self won't deliver any help. And it certainly won't guide our future. Well, do you have such a spirituality where... You just accept Christian teaching where it suits you and then you add in your own belief mix of perhaps positive thinking or Buddhism or something else. If so, you are committing spiritual adultery. And so too is pluralism, which is so popular today, the idea that all beliefs or religions are equal. Well, according to God, they aren't. They're simply forms of idolatry before the one true God. God states this very strongly in the first of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. That last phrase is literally, no other gods before my face. See, religious pluralism, saying all gods are valid, that all paths lead to the top of the one mountain, brought the true God's judgment on Israel, just as mixing beliefs did. And so we need to learn to recognize these two errors and to reject them. Which brings us to a second answer to how God deals with idolatrous people. He refines them. Secondly, he refines them. Notice again what is recorded in verses 8 to 11. You have neither heard nor understood from of old. Your ears have not been open. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You were called a rebel from birth. For my own namesake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you, so as not to destroy you completely. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. See, God's old covenant people here are described as closed-minded, treacherous rebels from birth. And yet, God didn't desert them because of their stubborn sin. Rather, he worked in them to refine them. Verse 10 states that God had tested them in the furnace of affliction. Now, this is a phrase that was first used in relation to Israel's experience in Egypt. But here it refers to their exile in Babylon. God had punished his people for their sin, several centuries of sin, by sending them into captivity for 70 years. And the phrase, I have refined you, though not as silver, refers to God holding back some of his wrath to prevent the whole nation from being destroyed. You see, silver endures until all the impurities are gone. 
But there are limitations to the affliction God allows to fulfill his promises to return the people to Jerusalem. You see, it seems that the exile still had not fully turned Judah into a refined precious metal like silver. But despite the limitations of the exile for changing the hearts of people, God would continue to work patiently with his people. And he does so because of the honour of his name. His name is shorthand for his character, who he is. You see, there's, there's more at stake than even the improvement of Israel. God will not be defamed. The world must know that he rules, not Babylon. And so he will press on for that reason with Israel, so that the praise that is rightly his may be given. You see, the abandonment of Israel at this point would be misunderstood by the watching world, just as it had been argued following the exodus from Egypt by Moses. But neither the power of sin or the force of Babylon will win the day. God will send his people home. Well, what's the application for us today as God's new covenant people? I think God's commitment to refine his people must jolt us into taking sin seriously in our own lives because we see how seriously our holy God views sin. And he will not leave us be, but he will discipline us when we go off track. In Hebrews 12, verses 4 to 6 and 11, we read this. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. See, we need to realize that God can and will judge his people today, just as he did the people of Israel. However, our salvation is assured through faith in in Christ. We're not concerned about being condemned. And therefore, we are to see God's rebuke as designed to produce in us a righteous life where we seek to hate sin as much as he does. Now, of course, one of the biggest sins that we're going to battle with is idolatry. Not wooden or stone gods or metal gods, but the, the modern objects of worship, which are many. Money, possessions, career, lifestyle, comfort that comes with that, education, even family. Ultimately, the idol of self. You know, a common phenomenon in nature is the path of least resistance. Electricity moving through a circuit will always travel where it has the easiest route. Rivers will always travel around a mountain. And likewise, people, including Christians, are prone to take that path too. You know, it's easy to think, look, I need more possessions like my neighbor. You know, I'm just helping my family's future. It's easy to think, I'm just using my God-given skills by working 70 hours a week and having no time to go to Bible study or church. 
Our society is full of subtle and more blatant idols, so be careful. Worship is either directed toward God and is true, or in the wrong direction and is called idolatry. And God won't let his people pursue ultimate satisfaction, comfort, security or joy outside of him. He'll graciously intervene. And that brings us to a third and final answer to how God deals with idolatrous people. Thirdly, he saves them. Thirdly, he saves them. Notice again what is recorded in verses 14 to 16. We see God's graciousness here. The Lord's chosen people, chosen ally, will carry out his purpose against Babylon. His arm will be against the Babylonians. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I will bring him and he will succeed in his mission. Come near me and listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. And now the sovereign Lord has sent me, endowed with his spirit. Verses 14 and 15 recap God's appointment of Cyrus as his ally to rescue the Israelites from Babylon. And the assurance here is that he will succeed. God is not acting in secret. And he is providing them an opportunity to entrust themselves to his plans by telling them ahead of time. But then did you notice in verse 16, suddenly, out of nowhere, a new rescuer has been sent by God. Another voice speaks in the first person at the end of verse 16. And here is the servant first mentioned in chapter 42 and who will be the focus of God's plan from chapters 49 onwards. While everyone else in Israel may be false and stubborn and rebellious, this servant is not. He has God's spirit. And this reference is fulfilled, of course, in Jesus. And it's important because here is proof that the Lord has not given up on Israel, that there is hope. Now, this hope is important in resolving a tension that runs right through this chapter and which is reinforced in the final three verses. In verses 20 and 21, God gives the command to leave Babylon. It's the announcement that the people are going. They're right on the cusp. Perhaps it's 540 BC, the year before Cyrus sends them home. And yet in verse 22, we're told there is no peace for the wicked. It's a strange, tragic note to end the chapter on. Because what is being highlighted is that a change of address does not equal a change of heart. They may be going home. But have they turned from their idols? Isaiah has just listed how different their history and their relationship with the Lord would have been if they had listened to his word. That's what verses 17 to 19 are all about. But that failure to listen had led to idolatry. And this problem had not been resolved, even though they were now about to return to Jerusalem. If the exile had not dealt with their sin... If Cyrus's rescue could not even fix it, well then perhaps the servant sent with the Spirit would produce the new hearts. In October of 1999, an 18-year-old guy was driving a tractor on his family farm near Armadale. His tractor rolled and tragically he was crushed to death. 
And although brain dead, his heart was functioning and his family decided to give his heart to someone needing a transplant that they might have life. And so they flew his body to Hunter Hospital in Newcastle and operated on him to remove his heart and other organs. Now, people often wait three or four years for a heart transplant, walking around with a pager on, constantly ready to go if their donor were available. It's ironic, isn't it? But a person must die to give them life. And it's the same for a person spiritually. Christ's death and resurrection and the gift of the Spirit is the only way that we can have new life. That's the only way that our idolatrous hearts can be changed. We need God's help that we might love Him, our Creator, and not created things. Well, an application of this is that as Christians who have been called out of darkness by faith in Jesus, we need to proclaim this good news to the ends of the earth. Just as Israel was called to announce the end of the exile in verse 20 to everyone. See, disciples of Jesus are to share the gospel, which brings freedom from idolatry. And even if we were to face rejection, as Isaiah's message did from a number of his countrymen, let alone the pagan nations around, the gospel will still bear fruit down the track. In January of 1956, five American missionaries, including Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, were brutally speared to death by the Orca Indians that they had gone to share the gospel with in Ecuador. Not one person had responded to the gospel when they died. And much planning and prayer had preceded their efforts. They had dropped things into the forest as gifts into reaching a difficult area by plane. Was it all wasted then? Well, no, they had obeyed God's command to share the gospel. And their efforts, along with their families, were to bear fruit. In October of 1958, Jim Elliott's wife Betty and her daughter Valerie along with Nate Saint's sister Rachel, entered the Orca settlement, and many of the Indians have since turned to Christ. Now, for the Orca Indians who needed to give up their idols associated with their animus beliefs, so we too need to give up our particular idols. This is the struggle of sharing the gospel and why often it's so not willingly received. You see, the good news of Jesus means we need to give up things that have taken hold of our heart. We need to give thanks that God deals with our idolatrous hearts by pointing us to his past and future promises in Christ, by saving us through Jesus, and then refining us so that we might truly reflect his character. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you. That in Christ we have one, this promised servant who came, full of your spirit, living the life that you intended your people to live, but who could never could because of our sin. Lord, we thank you that he laid down his life on the cross so that those who place their trust in him may be given a fresh start that you would pour out your spirit on us and change our hard hearts, that we might give up the idols that we so often cling to and that we might entrust ourselves fully to your Son. Lord, help us to reflect on this, to hear the challenge in our own lives today 
of other things that we might be holding to rather than our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.